And so I invite you to turn with me first then to Colossians chapter 3. We'll read the first 11 verses and then we'll turn a few pages back to Galatians 5. And if you have Bibles, you can read them along and perhaps the text is projected behind me as well. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's now turn back a few pages. Well, you're turning back, if you have Bibles with you, at least to Galatians 5. And I'm going to speak about this conflict between flesh and spirit, paying attention to the war with the flesh this morning and then to walking in the spirit this afternoon. Galatians 5, let's begin our reading at verse 16. And we'll read to the end of verse 21. 16 through 21 Galatians 5. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it wasn't long before I began my sabbatical in January of this year when I was at a neighborhood pub where I often frequent, and I was chatting with a server there that I hadn't met before. And she asked me what I did for a living And I said, oh, I'm a pastor of a church in the neighborhood. And she kind of took a step back and looked at me with some disapproval. And I said to her, do you go to church? And she said, no, I have a problem with organized religion. And I said to her, oh, I think you'll be quite fond of the church I pastor. We can be quite disorganized. And I said, why is it that you have a problem with the church? And she said to me, I don't think the church 
should have the right to tell people how to live. And that's an idea that I encounter quite often today. In fact, there was a time when people, even if you weren't a Christian, there was a time when people would think that the church was a moral institution. Today, I find the exact opposite, where people see the church as an immoral institution. And the reason why people think the church is immoral is because it tells people how to live when they, in some cases, want to live in a different way. Therein lies the immorality. And I said to her, it sounds to me like you prize freedom. And she said, I do. And I said, I do too. And I said to her, I think, in fact, that freedom is at the heart of Jesus' message, that Jesus wants us to be free. But he doesn't want us to be free in any way. He doesn't want, to be, he would, doesn't want us to be free in a way in which we hurt ourselves or hurt others or hurt others in society. I said, I think Jesus wants us to live authentic human lives. He wants us to be truly human and truly authentic. Well, how can we live truly authentic lives, truly human lives? You know, the message that our culture gives, you probably heard the slogans, follow your heart, believe in yourself, be yourself, fulfill your desires, pursue your dreams, choose your adventure. And it's really unique if you think of human history, how we are in a time unlike any other time, because for most of world history, whether you're a Christian or not, your moral compass would exist outside of yourself, and you would know how to live based on what your tribal elders were saying, or what the tradition was, or what some revelation from God or the gods said. You would know how to live based on what your parents taught you, your teachers. And now for the first time in human history, people locate their moral compass not outside of themselves, but inside of themselves. Follow your heart. Let your conscience be your guide. Be attentive to what you want to do, what you, how you want to live, to your own desires. And it's not just that your, your moral compass is now inside and not outside. It is perceived to be immoral to... If you want to do one thing, listen to somebody else tell you something different. Therein lies the immorality of the church. An individual wants to live a certain way, and the church says to the individual, you shouldn't live that way. Well, I said to this uh, server at the neighborhood pub, I said, you know, the church hasn't always been a reliable moral guide. And the church has sometimes warranted and sanctioned things it shouldn't sanction or warrant. The church has made mistakes. And I say, I, as a pastor of a Christian church, have made mistakes. I, I've, I've given advice I shouldn't have given, told people to do things they, they shouldn't do. And I feel horrible about that. But I said to her, I wonder if you would agree with me that your heart is also not a reliable moral guide. 
let's agree that the church isn't always a reliable moral guide, but don't you agree with me that your heart is not always a reliable moral guide either? Have you ever had it where you wanted to do something, but in doing it discovered that you were hurting yourself or maybe hurting someone else? And she could agree with that. And it seems to me that this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in these verses from Galatians 5. He's talking about the reliability of the heart as a moral guide. The reliability of the heart as a moral compass. And the Apostle is warning us, he's saying to us, there's a monster that's lurking in the human heart. And we need to see it, and we need to fight it. If you're taking notes this morning, those are my two points. Identifying the monster and fighting the monster. Maybe the advice, follow your heart, isn't so good. Maybe there's something about your heart that's dangerous. Maybe there's a monster lurking in your heart. Well, the Apostle Paul in these verses, you know, is summoning us to a peculiar life. Walk by the Spirit and so do not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh is what we inherit when we're born. The flesh refers to our sinful impulses with which we are born, our sinful desires. And our desires are both disordered and distorted. How are our desires disordered? It used to be very common in the Christian church, not so much today, for people to define sin as disordered desire. What do they mean by that? Well, I think we can agree that we are born with two sets of desires. We have what we might call primal desires, These are the desires that we share with animals. They are the desires to eat and to drink and to sleep and desires for security and self-preservation. They are our strongest desires. And they are the desires that are most easily satisfied. If you're hungry, you eat a sandwich, you're satisfied. If you're tired, you go to sleep and you're satisfied. Our primal desires that we share with the animals are our strongest desires and the desires most easily satisfied. But the fact is we are not animals. We are created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God and spiritual beings, and therefore we don't only have primal desires, we have spiritual desires. And our spiritual desires are not our strongest desires, but they are our deepest desires and our most important desires, and they are not easily satisfied. But what are our spiritual desires? Our spiritual desires are to be in fellowship with God, to be in relationship with Him, to be in fellowship with Him, to have our life integrated into His life. He didn't create us to live alone. He created us to be in relationship with Him, to have our lives integrated into His life. And when our lives are integrated into his life, we are, in a word, at home, at peace, as content and as satisfied and as happy as we'll ever be 
on this side of glory. Now, of course, on the other side of glory, we'll be completely satisfied, content, and happy. But as satisfied and content and happy as we can be on this side of glory. Our primal desires, shared with the animals, strong desires, easy to be satisfied. And then our spiritual desires, unique to humans, our deepest and most important desires and not easily satisfied. And what sin does, what the flesh does, is it inverts the order of these desires. And it makes our primal desires our most important desires. It elevates our primal desires over our spiritual desires, sometimes eclipsing our spiritual desires completely. And this, in fact, is what we see happening in the Garden of Eden. I wonder how many people here know the story of what happened in the Garden of Eden. If you're unfamiliar with the story, there's plenty of time to learn. But it involves these two characters at the outset of human history, Adam and Eve, and they do something in the garden that catapults humanity into sin, that causes what we call the fall into sin, that invites the displeasure of God. And we say to ourselves, what horrible crime occurred in the garden to catapult humanity into depravity? What heinous offense occurred in that garden to invite God's displeasure and unhappiness? And the answer is, Eve ate an apple, or a pomegranate, whatever fruit it was. Well, we say, what was wrong with the apple? And the answer that the Bible provides is nothing. The Bible says the, the fruit was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable to make one wise, nothing wrong with the fruit. So, try to defend this to your neighbor. Humanity catapulted into depravity and invited the displeasure of God because Adam and Eve ate a fruit that was good. It doesn't seem to make sense on the surface, does it? They had primal desires shared with the animals to eat good desires, the desires that Jesus had. They were hungry, they ate, and somehow this is the origin of sin. There was nothing wrong with the fruit. But there was something wrong with eating the fruit, wasn't there? And what was wrong with eating the fruit is that God had said to them, you shall not eat of the fruit. And the Lord was imparting to them a very important lesson, relevant then, relevant for us today, namely, desire me more than food. I am more important than food. Fellowship with the Father is more important than food. And what sin does is it inverts the order. It reverses things. makes our primal desires more important than our spiritual desires. Sometimes to the point where the spiritual desires are eclipsed. And in a moment, you see, Adam and Eve behaved like animals. They ate by instinct. That's what animals do. Animal is hungry, animal eats. 
And for human beings, something is meant to occur between the hunger and the eating, and that's thinking. We should not fulfill these primal desires without thinking. And God wants us to prize the spiritual desires over the primal desires. Because the flesh, and this is the point Paul is making in Colossians, the flesh lives on an earthly plane. That's why Paul is saying, don't be earthly minded. Don't keep your eyes down, but keep looking up. Set your hearts and your minds on things above where Christ is at the right hand of God. Because fellowship with the Father is more important than a full stomach. And spiritual refreshment is more important than physical leisure. And spiritual vitality is more important than physical exercise. And the eternal is more important than the temporal. And it's not that the physical and the temporal are unimportant. It's that there's something more important. There's something more important than the earth, and that's heaven. Something more important than food, and that's the Father. Something more important than sexual intimacy with a person, and that's intimacy with Christ. I don't know how many of you here this morning know the story of Esau. He's a character in the Old Testament who sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. And one of the messages that Jesus is conveying in his ministry is don't sell your birthright as an image bearer of God for a bowl of soup. Don't do it. Now, what do these disordered desires produce? Well, you can look at the text in Galatians, and Paul provides this ugly catalog of sins, many of which are generated and produced by distorted desires, by the elevation of the primal over the spiritual, and you can read them, drunkenness, orgy, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, all of these sins are the fruit of distort, distorted, disordered, rather, desires which privilege the primal over the spiritual and reduce human life to sensuality. But there aren't only disordered desires, they are, there are distorted uh, desires. And if disordered desire involves the elevation of the primal, then distorted desires involve the twisting of the spiritual. And this is a lesson I learned from an old Reformed theologian by the name of Herman Bavink. Not so important that you know his name, but one of the individuals with whom I've been busy on my sabbatical. And he says in one place that sin falls into one of two categories, where we either behave like animals or we behave like demons. We behave like animals when we elevate the primal over the spiritual, and we behave like demons when we twist the spiritual. Distorted desire is where we put God to the side, dethrone God, and put ourselves at the center of the universe. It is the sin of pride, of selfish ambition, of egocentricity, putting God to the side. In fact, in Galatians, Paul provides this wonderful illustration of what he means in the story of Hagar and Sarah. And again, I don't know if you know, if you know the story, but Abraham and Sarah were promised a child 
and they wanted to have a child, and at one point they determined to have a child without God's help. That's distorted desire, the twisting of... We're going to do this without God's help, and so they enlist Hagar, not God, and Hagar gives birth to a son called Ishmael, and Paul calls him a child of the flesh because he's born without God's help. And then Sarah conceives, and she gives birth to a son whom they call Isaac, and Paul calls him a child of the promise, a child of God's action. God made the promise. God kept the promise. God did it. One born without God's help, one born with God's help. Our desires are distorted when we think we can do it without God, when we decenter him, dethrone him, put ourselves at the center of the universe, make our desires paramount. And you'll notice in, in Paul's catalog of, of, of sins that he provides here in Galatians 5, there aren't just the fruit of disordered desire, there's also the fruit of distorted desire he mentions idolatry, the worship of other gods. He mentions sorcery, which is like meddling with evil powers. But he also mentions hatred and enmity and jealousy and envy and so forth. Because if you always want your way, you're not going to always get it. And you'll become angry. And if you put yourself at the center of the universe and make yourself the most important person, you're not going to be able to celebrate the gifts in another person. You're going to be jealous. You're going to be envious. You twist the desire to be in fellowship with God and make yourself the center of the universe, you're going to discover a problem with anger and envy and jealousy and hatred and enmity. And you're going to become a divisive person person characterized by dissension because you want to get your way. And Paul warns, doesn't he? Verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you want to live your life without integrating God into it, if you want to go through life without God being part of it, if you want to go through life without a relationship with God, you're going to find yourself in a place you're not supposed to find yourself in. You're going to discover that you're far from home. You're going to discover that you, in a word, are lost. Because that's where we are when we're far from home. And God is going to honor your wishes because God excludes from his presence those people who don't want it. He excludes from a relationship with him those who don't want it. And I've always appreciated, therefore, what C.S. Lewis says about hell. The door to hell is closed from the inside. It's not God pushing people into hell and then closing the door on them. It's people walking in there, wanting a life without God, and God granting their wish. They close the door from the inside and lock it. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but to me, the absolute 
picture of a person who is lost and far from home is not simply a person who doesn't want the presence of God, but a person who cannot have the presence of God in their lives. And I want to say to you this morning that heaven is never missed by a hair. It's missed by a constant determination to escape God and to be free from Him, to live without Him, to not be in relationship with Him. And Paul says, I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that's identifying the monster, but how do we fight the monster? It's very clear from this passage that the Christian life involves this very intense conflict. And we get that kind of language, don't we, in verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. How do we fight the monster? Well, I don't know if this is helpful, but I thought this past week, well, desires fall into these different categories of disordered and distorted. And the distorted desires we must crucify and put to death, and the disordered desires we need to redirect. A slight difference in how we deal with them. Well, let's deal with the, distort, the distorted desires first. They're very similar words, aren't they? Disordered and distorted. The distorted desires first, the twisting of the spiritual desires. Paul says they must be crucified. And that's not something that's done to us. That's something that we do. We must crucify those desires, the desires of egocentricity, those desires where we want to put ourselves at the center of the universe, where we see ourselves as the most important people, where we live our lives for ourselves, selfish ambition. Other people don't matter. God certainly doesn't matter. Take those desires, Paul says, nail them to the cross, and you, perhaps you know that if a, a person was crucified, he didn't immediately die. What was unique about the death of Jesus was that he died so quickly. Sometimes people would be suspended on the cross for days before they would die. Take those desires, nail them to the cross. They'll still be alive, but at least they can't move. It's a picture of repentance. About forsaking the old way where what mattered was your agenda and your way and your will. Nail it to the cross. It's decisive and it's painful, but leave them there at the cross to die. But some desires should not be killed, but redirected, it seems to me. Would you agree with me that we live in a highly sexualized culture? It's the implication of decadence. Wherever you have a culture where there's time and money, you get decadence, and in decadent cultures, you get hyper-sexualized messages. It was true of the Roman Empire. Wealthy, luxurious, decadent, sexualized. I read Viktor Frankl's wonderful book, Man's Search for Meaning, a while back. He's an Austrian psychiatrist who wrote about his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp. And he pointed out something very fascinating to me. I've never forgotten it, that among the prisoners... In the concentration camp, there was never a hint 
of sexual innuendo or sexual inappropriateness, not a hint. Life was too grim. Life was too serious. You don't mess with the sexual dimension. You don't joke about it. It's a serious thing. But what's the messaging that we hear today? The messaging that we hear today is that sexual intimacy is a right that every human being has. That to go through life without any sexual intimacy is to live an unfulfilled human life, which is a heresy because of what it implies about Jesus, that he, without, a, without any sexual intimacy, was unfulfilled. We are bombarded with images, with temptations, with all kinds of ways for sexual desires to be fulfilled. And Jesus presents a life and an ethic which is diametrically countercultural here. And when I meet with my secularist friends, and they always ask me about sexuality and this sort of thing, and I said the Christian view is far weirder than you could ever imagine. It's far more bizarre than you've even thought it is. Because Jesus reserves the expression and the enjoyment of sexual desires for marriages between a man and a woman. And he invites a whole big demographic of people to ignore this dimension of their humanity and to not indulge it. All single people are not to indulge this dimension of their humanity. And on the surface, you say that is unjust and unfair and wrong. For people to be excluded from this dimension of their humanity because they're not married. I can understand that protest. That resonates with me to a certain extent, there is a logic to it if you don't get the full picture. But you see, the point is that Jesus wants all of us, married and unmarried, to orient ourselves completely to him, to find fulfillment in him, to experience intimacy with him. Because chastity or celibacy is not simply the suppression of love, and it certainly isn't the negation of love. It's redirecting love to the ultimate object. So we locate our love in Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul said it's better to be single than to be married. You're closer to the new creation if you're single, because if you're married, you're your love has two interests. Your interests are divided. But if you're single, you get closer to that reality of new creation, of full intimacy with God, into whose life we are created to be integrated into. Jesus put it this way. He said, seek first the kingdom. Don't worry about these other things like food and clothing. Seek first the kingdom. Now, I spent the month of uh, February in Cambridge, England, and there I spent some time with two gay men, uh, both at different times, not at the same time, both Christian, same-sex attracted men, 
both of whom had committed themselves to a life of celibacy, something that seems unbelievable today. People laugh at it, really. Both of them said to me, I'm so persuaded by the way of Jesus that I'm going to forgo this part of human life and live my life for Christ and with Christ. I'm so, they're so captivated with the, the beauty of Christ and the beauty of his kingdom and what Jesus has to offer that both of them said to me in different ways, I'm making sacrifices that I know, I know are going to involve pain and loneliness. But Jesus is giving me something better. And for one of them, the, the text that spoke powerfully was in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. I want to read these uh, verses with you for a minute here. Mark 10, 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Because this gentleman knew that by committing to a life of, service, of celibacy, he was foregoing Children, both men wanted to have children, foregoing children. But Jesus said, no one who forgoes children will not receive a hundredfold. And the text that encouraged the other one was from Isaiah 56, where we read about those who are sexually extraordinary or abnormal or not typical Salvation for the foreigners, it says, it's Isaiah 56, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch, the sexually disordered person say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And they said to me, Bill, we're giving something up. And we're under no illusions about the pain, the loneliness, the dashed dreams. But we're getting something better. And we're experiencing it already now. You know, we learn to redirect our desires, our disordered desires through the practice of fasting, don't we? Because fasting, you see, is not simply the abstaining from food. That's the way a non-Christian might describe it. It's not simply abstaining from food. It's not simply the suppression of hunger or the negation of an appetite, it's locating a life substance that is sustaining elsewhere. 
And Jesus tells us repeatedly in the Gospels that there's a food the world doesn't know about. And that we can fast and abstain from food and still feel satisfied. Because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and the devil came to him and there was never a point in his life up till then it seems when he was stronger than after he had fasted because he was feeding on the word of the Lord, sustained by it. One of the first uh, funeral messages I did was of a friend my first pastor who died of bone cancer, a terrible, terrible death. And he said to me, Bill, would you say something about Psalm 63? And I said, of course. David, when he was in the wilderness, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land when there is no water. So I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is Better than life. That's the text he wanted me to preach. Your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. David in the wilderness, deprived, hungry, thirsty, he says, I could be satisfied. With the provisions of your grace. With this food that the world doesn't know. So fasting before the Lord is feasting, isn't it? And that's why Jesus says, when you fast, don't look sad and distressed. He's not trying to get his disciples to mislead people. But he says, if you're fasting properly, you're going to be joyful and happy, feeling the sustenance of the Lord's kindness and grace and of his word. So our culture says, as we begin to conclude, follow your heart. Believe in yourself. Fulfill your desires. And the Apostle Paul says, hold on a minute, there's a monster that's lurking. A monster that wants to harm you. You're not going to experience freedom. Believe in yourself. Follow your heart. Fulfill your desires. And Jesus says, no, believe in me. Follow me. And deny those desires. I encounter this so much with youth at Blessings. Uh, probably not a problem with youth here at Pathway. They're probably better instructed and catechized. But I sometimes have youth who talk about hypocrisy in a way that the Bible doesn't. Whereby they think that if you do something you don't want to do, you're a hypocrite. Oh, I didn't pray this morning because I didn't feel like it, and I thought if I did, I'd be a hypocrite. I didn't go to church tonight because I didn't feel like it, and I thought if I did, I'd be a hypocrite. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in the Bible is not incongruence between desire and practice. It's incongruence between profession and practice. And Paul is saying here, sometimes the most virtuous thing you can do is do something in spite of what you desire. That's virtue. Help the old lady across the street, whether you want to do it or not. Pray to the Lord and seek his face, especially when you don't want to, and make that your first confession. 
Please go to church when you don't feel like it because it means that you're weak and you're in need, as we all are, of being strengthened by the Word of God. That's not hypocrisy. Believe in me, Jesus says, follow me and deny your desires. Jesus offers us a way to be truly authentic and truly human, not to live like animals, merely scratching the itches when they appear eating and pursuing these desires by instinct. We're not to live like demons who shake their fist at God and want to be the ones with power. Truly human, authentic lives. And that's what my friends have discovered who've chosen celibacy. That's what I've discovered. And I hope it's what you discover. That life is more than food and drink. And it's more than sleep. And it's more than sex, and it's more than security. It's more than all of these things. And Jesus came to integrate us back into the life of the Father. Praise Him. That's what He was doing on the cross and through His resurrection, creating the way for us to be reintegrated into the life of the Father. And when we are reintegrated into the life of the Father, we are once again home where we're supposed to be. Not out there away from him, lost, but home at peace, content. Because in the midst of all the needs and desires and appetites that we have as human beings, we can experience when we're home, this contentment that the psalmist describes in Psalm 131, my favorite psalm, the contentment of a weaned child at her mother's breast. No longer crying, no longer clamoring, but content, just lying there with the source of the nourishment available, but content without it. And so I say to you as we conclude, don't sell your birthright as God's image bearers for a bowl of soup. Let's pray together. Our dear Lord, we are so grateful for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by means of his life and death and resurrection and ongoing ministry at your right hand has made it possible for us to return home when we were estranged from you and alienated from you and far from you and lost out in a place we weren't created to be, you brought us back to life with the Father. And I pray for my dear friends and brothers and sisters at Pathway that they would be convicted by this perspective that our deepest desires are our most important desires, even though they're not easily satisfied, to be in relationship with you and in relationship with you at home, with you in the place of contentment, like a weaned child at her mother's breast. Please impress this upon us so we understand and so we're captivated by, it, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.